Welcome and thanks for joining us on the podcast. Now let's join Pastor Ben Teefy for his message. Hey, thanks for joining us today. It's our joy to have you here. Ben Tiffy is my name, and I get the joy of being the lead pastor of this church. And uh, from our family and the leadership team of Desert Life Church, and uh, my wife Danielle, my lovely children. Uh, yeah, they're lovely 70% of the time. Uh, we would like to wish you and your family a very merry Christmas. Thank you for joining us. I want to just give a big shout out to people that this morning when we came in, uh, they were manning the car park and they were setting up uh, safety stations and people were on sound and lighting. There were people putting ice in the swampy so that, you know, you wouldn't melt this morning and be uh, frosty, the melted snowman in church. Uh, there were singers and musicians and production people. And one more time, why don't we give everyone a great thank you for hosting us so well this morning. Thank you, team. You really do make a difference. Christmas time, Christmas time. Who, who was able to get the great joy this morning of just unwrapping a Christmas gift? Anybody? How, how many parents out there or people with young people in your house had the great joy of giving any type of child a Christmas gift? Yeah, just a couple of us. So, so my kids are older now. They are 10, uh, 12 going on 22 and 14 going on 30. And, uh, and uh, she says to me, Dad, when am I allowed to get married? I said, honey, 32, when, you know, standard practice. Um, and uh, so they're older now. But when they were younger, Christmas was always so funny because what would happen is Danielle and I was, as new parents and young parents, we would have performance anxiety about the giving of Christmas gifts to our children. And of course, uh, like men everywhere, the Facebook meme that was going around yesterday afternoon just said one more sleep till men start shopping and uh, that's what I would do I would leave my shopping until 10 50 p.m on Christmas Eve because in Brisbane on Christmas Eve the shops are open until midnight uh, which means why would you waste three months in the lead up to Christmas gift giving when you can just knock it all over in in an hour and 10 minutes and still come away with time for a cappuccino uh, in the middle of it as well and so we would do that but often what would happen is I would agonize man I you know I, I I probably don't look very fit to you but when it comes to Christmas shopping I was a gold medal Olympic walker. I'm talking, you know, I'd be in, in Maya and the sales would be on and that last Barbie dream home, actually we never got the Barbie dream home, uh, but that last My Little Pony or something like that would be left and there would be me and I'd look and there'd be another lady doing the same thing. There was one 50% off My Little Pony on the shelf. And you know, it's just impolite in, in stores to race someone, isn't it? It's, it's also impolite to sidekick them and run and, and, and do that. If you haven't noticed that yet, you can't do that. Um, you get arrested and then that ruins Christmas for everybody. Um, and so what would happen is you just do the power walking thing as you're, you know, uh, trying to beat the person to... I, I think that was a reasonably good demonstration of physical prowess. And so if nothing else, you've now had your Christmas gift. Um, <laughs> And I would, I would race and get it, and I'd come home, and it would be like that. I think I would return from the Christmas gift selection debacle absolutely exhausted. Who's with me? And, and uh, year after year, you'd go to more effort than you should, and you'd spend more money than you should, and you'd say to yourself, you know, Christmas is really more than just about this commercialism, and it's not just about the presents, um, uh, but then you take a look at those little faces on Christmas Day. And it becomes a little bit about the presence, doesn't it? It really does. And then, you know, if you and your wife, my wife Danielle, she's a hyper-competitive person, beats me in tennis, beats me in billiards, can't beat me in macrame, so we do that a lot at home, which is good. Um, but she's hyper-competitive. So her mission in life is always to get the gift that will be talked about until April. You know what I'm saying? 
not the one that's unwrapped and forgotten straight away. And uh, so she would, she would, you know, do her stuff and I'd do my stuff. And of course, invariably, I am the victim of this universal evil that children are capable of. Where are all the kids in the room? This, I'm talking about you guys right now. <laughs> This is what you guys do. Okay, so what would happen is you'd, you'd agonize over an appropriate gift that matches the style, the personality, the learning style, the multiple intelligences of your gifted child. You would select a gift just for them. And in my house, it was always a Rambo doll. I don't know what that's saying. But anyway, that's a long time ago when I was a young boy. And, and um, you'd, you'd select something and you'd give it to the small child and the child would unwrap the gift. And of course, they would take the gift and throw it over their shoulder and sit and play in the wrapping paper. Isn't that just so annoying? How many people ever had that? You know, you think next year I'm just going to get this kid a saucepan and a fridge box and that's it. They're going to be happy for the rest of their life. And, and they would sit in and play with the wrapping paper. And it's so frustrating because you've gone to all of this effort to select a gift, to select an appropriate gift. You know the child, you know their needs, you know their interests, you know their gifts, you know their skills. That's why you got them the Rubik's Cube with no instruction book. Because you know they're going to be able to work it out. And then when they're older, invent an iPhone and make you rich. That's what you know about your child, isn't it? And, and so um, you do this. And then that, that child for whom you selected the most appropriate gift possible based on their personalities, their strengths, their interests, their needs, and what was on sale at the time, and what was left on the shelves, <laughs> uh, you gave it to them. And they disregarded the gift, which was the important bit, and they got caught up in the wrapping paper, which was actually not the important bit, but is very noticeable because they look at it all year long, don't they? They look at it as soon as you fill the Christmas tree with presents, the kids are there and there's gold sparkly paper and ribbons and bows and shiny stuff and all this sort of thing. And how many people have ever busted children when they don't know you're looking and they're snooping around under the Christmas tree? They're kind of warming their hands, feeling, mm, using the force to try to work out, what is that? Is that an Xbox? Is that an Xbox? Sorry, it's a mix master, you know. Um, <laughs> Only the really classy cooking connoisseurs know what a mix master is. Isn't that right, Eunice de Kock? That's right. Uh, so annoying. You know, sometimes we can be like that, I think. When it comes to Christmas, Christmas, the idea of gift giving and gift swapping on Christmas is just simply a little moment in time where every person can sit in a theological truth, a deep spiritual truth. Or everything that we know about the Christmas narratives, everything we can reconstruct historically, everything we can reconstruct philosophically, everything we can reconstruct theologically captures something that's very interesting. And that interest is surprise and wonder and awe. Because in the Christmas story, what we get is something that nobody was ever expecting, even though they were forewarned and even though it was foretold. We have prophets 700 years before Jesus was born, predicting the year, predicting the place, predicting the time, predicting his name, predicting the town. And yet when he was born, everybody was surprised because the implications of the birth of King Jesus spell something amazing and wonderful. And like the stinky shepherds, the bottom of the social ladder, the social outcasts, being the first ones to hear about Jesus and then welcome at his cribside. They must have been filled with wonder, mustn't they? They must have been filled with awe. They must have been filled with surprise. And, and when we give a thoughtful gift and somebody unwraps it, that moment of wonder, that moment of surprise, not this one, oh, you shouldn't have. No, really, 
you shouldn't have, and now I wish you didn't. Not that one, but the, 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 uh, the good one. Oh, you shouldn't have. Wow, you know, the, the wonder, the surprise. We swap gifts at Christmas because what we do is we want to allow every man, every woman, every child to sit in anew the wonder of the theological surprise that must have been felt at Christmas and is felt by everybody who doesn't just hear the Christmas story but lives and walks with Jesus and God and allows the gift that is the Christmas story to be important to them more than just the wrapping paper. I couldn't think of a better analogy for what religion is than just wrapping paper. It's got shiny stuff. Sometimes it smells good. Sometimes things are just incredibly well packaged, aren't they? They're attractive. They, they, they're shiny. You want, ooh, I wonder what that was. What's that about? Just like Christmas presents under the tree. But then, and if you were with us in our service yesterday, you heard about my deplorable Christmas gift wrapping skills. And so sometimes the wrapping's not that great. And actually, you're really hoping that what's on the inside is a lot better than what's on the outside because the wrapping ain't that great. My, my mum went through a phase in our house where she used recycled brown paper to wrap Christmas presents. <laughs> and that compounded the wonder and joy of opening it because the outside was just so ugly of the gift. And so what was good, what was inside was good. And I couldn't think of a better analogy for what religion is than wrapping paper. Wrapping paper is only important because of what's inside the paper. But the paper itself, the wrapping itself is purely external and is inconsequential by any other means other than as a delivery mechanism for the gift. Isn't that true? You wrap the gift not because you want the person to value the paper. You want them to receive and value the gift. And at Christmas, sometimes what we have to do is we have to stand together as family. And in this room, there'd be all types of people. There'd be people of this faith, people of other faiths, people of strong faith, people of no faith, people of failing faith, people of weak faith. And at Christmas, what we should do is we should say, hey, don't get caught up in the wrapping paper, but do, do get caught up in the gift. We have a principle in our house, and it goes like this. You're always grateful for a gift. We, who's had the embarrassing thing of a family gathering where a person has received a gift that you can evidently see they hate and don't want? Ever had that? My sister one year, she was given a dress by my nana. And nana, you've heard nana stories before if you're a regular with us. And this, 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 this was a, a, a cheesecloth pinafore. And I don't even know what that means. I just might remember my sister saying it. I didn't know why she didn't like it. But apparently a 17-year-old doesn't wear cheesecloth pinafores. Who knew? Who knew? And, and, and so um, she, she, she masked it well because the principle in our family was always this. And, and you know, mum was always watching. And mum had this look that could not only freeze your behaviour, it would freeze your blood. And the look went like this. And she wouldn't say anything. She'd mouth to you. You wait. Oh, mum just gave me the you wait look. And uh, so none of us would, would do anything other than when somebody gives you a gift, we would gratefully receive it. And we would just express gratitude. Thank you. We'd stick out our hand, receive it gratefully. The only appropriate response to a gift is gratitude. Isn't that true? Hey, kids, listen to this. I'm going to tell you a secret. If you act grateful for presents you get more presents next time. <laughs> yeah, see, adults go, when children receive gifts ungratefully, adults go, they don't have a reasonable conversation in their mind. Oh, well, hey, the kid doesn't like blue. That's fine. Don't give the kid anything blue next time. The adults go, ungrateful little person. They're getting nothing next time. 
You know what they're going to get next time? They're going to get high fibre, home brand baked beans wrapped up. That's what they're going to get. So they can learn that there are starving children in South Sudan and they should be grateful for what they have. That's what they're going to get. The only, only appropriate response to a gift is gratitude. And so at Christmas, what we do corporately and collectively, we come together, but we should never get caught up. We should never get caught up in the wrapping paper of religion, but we should get caught up in the wonder of the gift that is in Jesus. John, the Apostle John, a great author, he was the youngest follower of Jesus, probably like 11 or 12 when he was walking around with Jesus. And, and, and when you read what he writes about himself, he describes himself as the one Jesus loved. <laughs> John, John was, he was always pushing himself forward. I was Jesus' favourite guy, you know. And uh, he, he writes profoundly about the meaning of Christmas, but shockingly and surprisingly about the meaning of Christmas. He, he joins together words that in the ancient world, especially the first century ancient world Jesus was born into, he joins together words that were never joined together by anyone who knew what they were talking about. In John chapter 1, verse 14, he, he encapsulates what Christmas is all about. Here's what it says. And the word became flesh and dwelt among us. And we have seen his glory, the glory as the only son from the father, full of grace and truth. Everybody say the word full. Say it like you're full. Full. Ever had a Christmas buffet? This afternoon, some of you will be sitting around and you'll reflect back on today and you'll then understand the meaning of the word full. Full simply means this, can't fit another thing in. And John says that when we look at the baby in a manger and really the man that he grew up to be, the king that he grew up to be, what we're seeing is someone so full of grace and truth that nothing else fits. Nothing else fits. Full of grace, kindness, mercy, unmerited favour, full of it, full of truth, not deceit, not lies, not ambiguity, but actually full of truth. The words John joins together that were never joined together in the ancient world are these three words, flesh, glory, and dwelt. Flesh, glory, and dwelt. Now, you're in a church, and today's kind of a religious festival, and you may or may not be a kind of religious type. So when you hear the words, and, and, and the word became flesh, and he dwelt amongst us, and we beheld his glory, you just kind of take it all on board as like, you know, religious language. But in the first century world, this is a deeply shocking statement, because John has done something that is not acceptable in the ancient world, and that is join together three words that nobody ever thought could possibly join together. Flesh, glory, dwelt. Flesh in the ancient world... It, it means meat, I guess. It means physicality. But more than that, it means everything that is wrong with the human condition. Everything that is broken. Everything that is fallen. Everything that is faulty. Everything that is frail. Yes, it has some good bits, but man, it's got some bad bits. And just check out world history to see what the word flesh means. It's more than just physicality. It is tainted humanity. This word flesh, it's what it means. And John tells us this extraordinary thing that happened in God is that in the divine wisdom of God, the template by which God created the universe, according to his son Jesus that was living and dwelling with him, God sent that son, that eternal word, that glorious one, the presence of God sent that son to take on flesh, to become flesh. God who is so much above us, God who is holy, God who is magnificent, God who is glorious, no one would ever expect that that God would lower himself to take on this thing called flesh. In, in theology, it's called 
the scandal of historical particularity. And it is a scandal that this amazing God would do something that nobody had ever before conceived or thought that God would ever possibly do, become like us. It's a scandal. But, but, but like us, but, but not like us. And here's where the other thing that would never go together. Not only would the God becoming flesh, that's so weird. Why would God lower himself? Why would God become like us? But then he says, and he dwelt among us. Everybody say the word dwelt. Dwelt is a very famous Bible word. It doesn't just mean to generically live somewhere like I dwell in Alice Springs and you dwell wherever you dwell. Uh, Dwelt is a famous Bible word which meant the inhabitants of God's glory in the temples that he inhabited. Dwelt is a holy word. Dwelt is like a spiritual word. Dwelt is God's presence came. And and dwelt is a word that was reserved for temples and tabernacles and mountaintop shrines and altars and sacrifices. This word dwelt, you would never put the word dwelt and flesh together. Because most people in the ancient world, what they really thought is, this is what God's view of humans is. God's view of humans is that they were evil and every now and then they need to be smited, smitten, Smote, smitteth, that, that every now and then God needs to smite them because they're evil. That flesh thing about them must be eradicated like a virus, like a disease. And, 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 and yet in a temple, what you could do is you, you, you progressively, as you enter a temple with sacrifice and worship and you light the candles and you ring the bells and you smell the smells. And what you do is as you enter the temple, what you're doing is you're casting off the flesh to make yourself acceptable to God so that he can dwell near you. Listen to what they thought. You make yourself acceptable to God so that he can dwell near you. That is not the Christmas story. That is not the Christian gospel. That, that making yourself acceptable to God is really ugly wrapping paper when it comes to Christmas. The Christmas story is not you make yourself acceptable to God and then he can come near. The Christmas story is the glory of God became flesh so that the glory of God could come near you. And then we are not told the glory of God dwelt in a temple or dwelt in a tabernacle or dwelt where the altar was or dwelt with the priests or the kings or the really spiritual, wild-eyed, crazy prophets in the desert. John, the teenage boy, he makes this unbelievable statement. The word became flesh and he dwelt among us. He dwelt among us. And we beheld his glory. Well, the, old, the ancient world, they would never put dwelling glory and flesh together because the, these people, they, God wants to smite them. God is far off. God is distant. You must make yourself acceptable to God before you come to him. And here God comes flipping the script at Christmas and saying, humanity, it's not what about you do to come near to me. It's about what I do to come near to you. That's the Christian gospel. The Christian gospel is not do spiritual backflips like a spiritual poodle jumping through hoops, hoping that you'll get a doggy treat from the God of the universe. Here's the Christian gospel. The glorious word became flesh and dwelt among us. And how did Jesus dwell? He didn't live in a castle. He didn't live in a temple. He didn't ever erect an altar. He didn't build a tabernacle. He walked the dusty streets of Palestine and he touched lepers and healed them. He, he, he said to social outcasts, I'm coming to feast with you. I must dine at your house today. 
He, he, he said to women that everybody else would stone because she was caught red-handed in the act of adultery. I mean, a bit creepy. They, they, there was something weird going on. They caught her in the very act and they bring her and they throw her at Jesus' feet and they say, well, you know what has to happen with this fleshly virus of humanity? Smite her, Jesus. And Jesus says, I don't condemn you. And he touches her and he lifts her up. No one's ever expecting God to behave that way. And that's the genuine wonder and surprise of Christmas. That's the genuine surprise of Christmas is, do you know what? God is like nothing we ever thought God was like. It's good news for us. It should be a welcome surprise to our hearts and to our souls. It should be a welcome relief from from the law and the bondage and the performance trap that we find ourselves in. And, and, And you could get all caught up in religion, have the best wrapping paper ever. But wouldn't it be a shame this Christmas if when you want your kids to be grateful for gifts that you give them, if you failed to just stand before the creator of the universe, applying the same thought, the only response to a gift is gratitude. The only appropriate response to gift giving is grateful reception. I'd love to pray for you today before we move on to the next part of our service. And I wonder if you join me in this moment and just bow your heads and close your eyes. And I don't mind whether you're a praying type or whether you're the not praying type. Actually, if you're the not praying type, you and I get along pretty good because I'm sort of a borderline praying type most of the time. You know, I'm incredibly thrilled and grateful that God became flesh to dwell among us because that's the only way someone like me would be able to walk in God's presence. I'm so grateful every day, not just Christmas, but I'm so grateful because I know the reality of Jesus Christ in my life. I know the reality of the presence of God in my life. And I'm so grateful that God took this person, me, who had been depressed for 14 years and treated every which way, psychologized, therapized, medicated. Then I self-medicated, became an alcoholic, became a drug addict. And nothing was working for me. But what was powerful was when I had my own Christmas moment and the glory of God came into my life. When I was confronted with the gospel message and I received it and it has changed my life. 17 years ago that happened and I have never looked back. I'm so grateful. Every day is like Christmas to me because every day I see fingerprints of God's glory, not smoke and fire in a temple, but loving, touching, living, breathing, Jesus moving in human lives. And today, my brother, my sister, my friend, man, woman or child, I'm going to pray for you. And I pray that today your life would be like a Bethlehem stable. I pray that you would be like a shepherd at a manger. I pray you'd be like a Mary and Joseph or a wise man that comes and says how wonderful this is, how surprising this is. It must be acknowledged. No one ever thought this was how God would be. And sometimes, no matter how Christian you are, you yourself can be so caught up with the wrapping paper but not even know how God is (laughs) because the wrapping paper has been more important than the gift in our world sometimes. Our Father, I pray for every man, woman and child in this room under the sound of my voice today. And I pray that the presence of King Jesus would come near to them, not just in the story, but by his very living presence that we know and experience on a daily basis. I pray that this Christmas, Lord, you would create in the hearts and minds of everybody under the sound of my voice today, a grateful, receptive heart, a heart like a manger, a heart that says, here's some space for you, Jesus. Come in and rule and reign. Come into my life and be Saviour and Lord. Let me behold your glory. Let me behold your glory and see that it's full of grace and full of truth. And there's not room for anything else. 
Lord, I pray for my friends in this room. I pray especially for those for whom Christmas is lonely and hard and difficult today. I pray you would come near by your sweet presence and your grace in Jesus' name. And everybody said, Amen and Amen. We hope you have been encouraged by this message. For more information, check out our website at desertlifechurch.org.